Whether it's for work or play, we rely on home internet so much these days. Being connected and staying connected has never been more important. So if you want reliable internet bought you at speed, switch to Aussie Broadband. It only takes a few minutes to sign up and their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Find out more at aussiebroadband.com.au. T's and C's apply. G'day guys, welcome back to this week's episode. This week on the show, we have Mary Spillane. She's a mental health lead at the Australian Institute of Sport. She's a mental health expert at Headspace. She's a clinical psychologist at Cricket Victoria. And she does just about everything. She's incredible. Um, Absolutely love this chat with her. She's obviously a psychologist. And yeah, I love doing these episodes. This one's different to to no other like we've really done before, to be honest. We learned so much about all facets of, of psychology, how, you know, she works in sport as well, which is a little bit different because normally it's a sports psychologist working in a sports environment, but she's actually a clinical psychologist working in sports environment, which just shows the importance now of healthy athlete and healthy people actually make better performing individuals, which, um, you know, we look at that now, it's quite obvious, but for a long time, it, it never was really seen that way. But yeah, love this chat with her. We spoke about obviously what she's doing in sport. We spoke about her career and what she's been able to do, which is incredible. We spoke about OCD in athletes, which is a topic that, you know, I'd never really touched on before and never really understood myself, you know, and, and how severe that this can be. We spoke about athlete identity. We spoke about heaps of triggers and tips to, to prevent and to, to put yourself in the most healthy place possible. We spoke a lot about awareness of our feelings and being able to identify that and separate it from ourselves and and make rational decisions, which is something that I'm always trying to improve a lot more on in, in myself personally. But um, yeah, just really, really enjoy this. So many little workshops that you can sort of work through and get some great little tidbits out of this episode. But cannot thank Mary enough for coming in. Absolutely loved it. If you enjoy this episode, if you like Dylan Friends, if you like listening to the show each week, please, please, please be absolutely massive, massive. If you could subscribe on Apple, um, follow on Spotify and yeah, review the show. Five stars. I don't know why the you know one to four isn't working still. You just got to give five stars apparently. Um, yeah, we'd really, really appreciate it. It means the absolute world and helps us um, keep doing what we're doing. But thank you so much. Enjoy it. Let's go, Illy. Hi, fam. It's Dylan's mum, Deborah. This is Dylan Friends. So you can embarrass yourself. And I was like, bro, do you want me to do all seven verses? Bit arrogant. Didn't know all yeah. seven. <laughs> so I've been in a bad team for 10 years and we got a chance to do something pretty special this year. All you can do is put your hand up and say you're wrong. Banter is a way that guys connect, a way that we can kind of play it safe with someone until we get to know them. I try to fix people sometimes. I'm like, Dan, stop doing that. Just listen. And you stack on top of that the habit of not taking your phone when you take your dog. It's easy. They had no other way to get out of the cave and we either turn our backs on them, in which case they're going to die, or we give this crazy idea a go. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Maris Blaine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm very good. I feel like it's it's good to be out and about again and doing things that, that I enjoy and getting back into, I don't know, travelling and seeing people and all of that. So I'm pretty good. And you're just saying you're away with cricket. Where were they recently? Uh, yes, we were just away in, in Perth for a, a couple of weeks finishing off the the Sheffield Shield, which yeah. was, um, yeah, which was great. It's, uh, oh, look, I love my cricketers. I don't follow a lot of cricket, but I feel like that season just doesn't finish. It just goes on forever. Do they have off, is that finished for the year now or is there still a bit more to go? Yeah, it's all done. Okay. And they have some time off now for a couple of months. So, it, but it does feel like it's a, it's a long season and they're, they're, they're very long games as well. Yeah. So I think it makes it seem, seem a bit long, but they definitely get a break now for a little while, which is, which is great. Awesome. Hey, I'm so excited to get you in today. So grateful and um, yeah, really pumped to, to have a chat. We've been wanting to do this for ages. Um, been a massive fan of your work and yeah, just say firstly, thank you so much for coming in. You are everywhere. Headspace, AIS, Cricket Victoria, 
so many more. Um, you're a clinical psychologist. So you're not actually a sports psychologist, you're a clinical psychologist working in sport. Correct, yes. Talk us through how you got involved in psychology, how you got involved in sport and um, a little bit about yourself. Well, I've always been a, a really sort of sporty person. Mm-hmm. Grew up in a family where sport wasn't really an option. You, you needed to watch it, you needed to play it, and you needed to enjoy it. And so I've always sort of grown up, you know, playing sports, watching sports, and and had hoped that I would end up working in sport at some point too. But I wasn't really sure how exactly that would happen. But I'd always hoped that that might be the case. And then at the same time, had a, a real interest in, you know, people and people's stories and, you know, all I would ever read when I was younger was just biographies. Mm. Uh, and so I sort of felt early on that psychology might be a good path for me to go down. And then at some point realised that I could probably combine the two. I could probably do psychology and work in sport and work with with athletes. So sort of set out to set out to do that Um I guess when I when I finished school, but it was it was a bit of a long journey, but um, got there in the end. It's a, it's a funny one because we were sort of chatting off air before this because with the difference of like sports psychology and clinical psychology, normally the psychologists that I'd worked with when I was playing footy, they were sports psychologists. So you talk a lot about sport with them and you know performance, performing anxiety, all a lot of things we'll talk about today. But I think when I was there, I was probably seeing these sports psychs. Pretending I was talking about sport, but really going fuck like I actually need help with this in my real life mm. as well. And if I always found like the better I was as a human, you know, off field and had my life intact there, then I, you know, the sport just sort of took care of itself. Yep. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I find that often people or or athletes or players will often present with a performance related issue and it's sort of it seems as though that might feel a bit more comfortable or a bit easier to talk about you know when you're when you're going to a psych you've got to be vulnerable and and it's difficult so people sort of go and sort of start with performance and then you you sort of talk around it a little bit more and it becomes evident that maybe that's part of it or that might be the tip of the iceberg and that actually there's some other stuff happening as well so I think it's quite common for people to present with a performance related issue um, when there, there could be other stuff going on yeah yeah, I look back there, I was like having this massive performance anxiety, but then I was also having it when I wasn't playing sport. I thought maybe this is actually an issue that is a little bit more holistic than I think and, and want to admit to. But um, no, it's it's a great sort of initiative, I suppose, by Cricket Victoria and everyone else you're working with to actually have the clinical side in as well because you're right, happy athletes, happy people make so much more performing in in all assets. Yeah, and it feels like it's, you know, the whole of sport is really moving in that direction. Mm. So many sports now and institutions are looking towards hiring psychologists in some in some way. Um, so I think we're really moving towards viewing psychology as an important piece of the puzzle, yeah. not some sort of extra luxury that people can have if they feel like they need it, but actually it's an important part of, as you said, you know, a holistically well person and, and well-functioning person. I, I hate this question because it is, it is so over-asked, but I, I am actually interested in your opinion on it because – from when you first started studying psychology to probably doing your early days, like the, the shift has been incredible, yeah. even in the last like three to four years. Talk us through like your role day to day at a at Cricket Victoria, for example, or anywhere else at the AAS, what you'd actually do and how busy are you? Because when, you know, sports psychs got introduced into footy maybe four or five years ago, I, I reckon they weren't doing a whole lot because players were too scared to go and even sit down and, mm. and have a chat with them. But now you, you, you struggle to even get a booking. Yes, yeah. There's, it's it's a bit of a crisis in some ways. Mm. Um, I, look, I love variety, and that's always been the thing that's helped me stay engaged. So I like to do a few different things at, at a time. 
So I've got the, the role at the AIS, which is, it's, I guess, the, the governing body of sport and sort of oversees a number of different Olympic and Paralympic sports. And so we do a number of different things there, but it's not so much athlete or coach facing. It's, mm. it's sort of dropping down different initiatives and programs into sports that then they can use and hopefully get some benefit from. So there's, you know, we, we have a national mental health referral network where we're triaging athletes out to psychologists and psychiatrists. We run education. We try and do some research. So there's quite a bit happening within that role. And then the, the Cricket Victoria role is much more athlete coach facing. So in the, in the daily environment, working with people and, and trying to assist them, I guess, on an individual individual basis. So every day is different and I'm very busy. I'm probably too busy, uh, as I was saying off, off air. Yeah. Probably need to start looking at cutting some things back. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's um, it's great to have so much variety and do different things. So we talk about Cricket Victoria, for example, because that's probably more of a hands-on role with mm. like seeing – athletes or, or any other sporting, you know, team that you work with in the past. What does that look like for you? Is it is it the one on ones? Is it talking to the group after sort of wins? How does that sort of correlate that role into into sport? Yeah, look, it's I guess it's it's essentially just working with human beings within a mm. within a sporting context. So people they're they're like, I guess, everyone else and they have all sorts of things that go on for them off the field, you know, in terms of relationships or stresses or health issues or, or whatnot. And then there's also on field performance issues or or issues that are directly related to what's happening within their sport. So, you know, injury, non-selection, um, you know, th- those sorts of things. Mm. So I guess it's it's working with individuals around whatever they need essentially. So I don't sort of go in there and prescribe what's needed but rather, you know, figure out what people are needing and try to support people with where they're at. Yeah. What are, what are some of the most common things, I suppose, and without talking, you know, names and people but in, in- – in your opinion, what are some of those common things that athletes and, – and when we say athletes today, like if anyone's listening, think people, humans, mm. like yourself, anyone that's not playing, you know, for footy, cricket, basketball, just people in general. What, what do you think of the, some of the most things people come to see you with that might be struggling? Look, at, at the moment, I think broadly speaking, people are pretty anxious and it, I guess, you know, that that's for all different sorts of reasons. But I think coming out of a, a global pandemic mm. and bouncing into – sort of busyness and the craziness of life has made people feel pretty anxious. And I think people are feeling really unsettled too. That That's something that I notice a lot. And, and you, you see trends overseas about what's happening with people and there's talk of great resignations and, you know, relationship breakups and all of these things where people are just feeling a little bit unsettled and, and, and not content. And so I think that is probably one of the things that I see a lot of at the moment is people trying to figure out, okay, we've just been through this really difficult time what next, what, what do I need to do or, or how do I need to feel okay again? Um, and, and that comes through, yeah, quite a bit. What, what like, I, it's a very broad question here, but what is something we can do? And I say this myself, I see a psychologist once a month and I'm always, my biggest thing that I've got in place is some, some triggers, I suppose, to help anxiety and mm-hmm. how to like, firstly, just call it out for what it is. Yep. What are some of those tips and tricks you'd put in place to sort of reduce anxiety? 
I think the, the key is awareness to me is really understanding your anxiety mm. and, and looking at it. So often with anxiety, the temptation is to avoid it, avoid thinking about it, avoid exposing ourselves to it and, and just sort of getting away for it whenever we can. Whereas I think the first step is actually being curious about your anxiety. So like you said, what kind of triggers your anxiety? When does it pop up? Mm. What makes it worse? What makes it better? What situations? So really understanding it first and then putting in some strategies for, for managing it that. So it, it could look like some gentle sort of exposure work or approaching some of the things that you feel anxious about, you know, doing some self-care, you know, talking about your anxiety with people. So all of those things can kind of help. But mm. I think understanding your anxiety and your emotional experience is one of the best things that you can do. Yeah, oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think this year for me personally and you know, not to uh, make the show about me, but I, I remember, you know, for, for my whole life I'd always had this and just thought it was that's how you are as a person. And then when you actually find out, fuck, you know, that actually isn't what's meant to be happening. You can actually call these things out and you learn to understand what, you know, sort of triggers me to be anxious. And I think the two tips that I've sort of picked up of late is one is just acknowledging it mm. and you go, it's sort of like, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's sort of like separating yourself from your brain and knowing mm. that they're two different things yeah. and going like that's not you, that's not your thoughts, that's just your anxiety mm. like creeping in, you need to mm-hmm. just acknowledge it and you go, oh, okay, cool, that's not me. Yep. Like I'm not having those thoughts myself. Yep. And the other one, which I actually learned this from TikTok, funnily enough, it was from and I, I – This is I, a worry. This is a worry, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's a real worry. It's a real worry. So you correct me if I'm wrong. But it was – I found this so beneficial of like – and it was like when I get into a bit of an anxious spiral, I'm, I'm feeling uneasy, it's I write down my problems, I write down the situation on a piece of paper and I cross off the ones I can't control. Mm. And then the ones that I can, I go, okay, well, these are the things I need to do to, to feel better. Yep, I like it. TikTok's onto is something. That onto, yeah, yep. Is TikTok right? Yep, I like it. I, I think, you know, that's one of the things that, that just creates anxiety and where we, things can spiral is when we do focus on the things that we cannot control. Yeah. It's just, it's all of this wasted mental energy. Oh my God. That then we find it difficult to actually problem solve or to acknowledge the things that we do have some control mm. over. So I, I think that's a really practical strategy. I, I really like it of writing things down, crossing off the things that you can't control yeah. and then focusing on what you can. I'm what you would call, and I, I I'm sure there might be someone else listening out there that has this. I'm what you call a catastrophizer, yes. but I can, I can really take a situation that is quite minimal, and I I will find the worst case situation that could ever happen from that, mm. and then nearly t- tell myself that it's happened. Yeah. Um. But I think it's like a survival mm. sort of technique because for me, maybe with like losing career, like jobs and careers, I always go, All right, what's worst case? What's worst case? What's mm-hmm. worst case? But mm-hmm. now it sort of creeps into, the you know, going, you don't actually have to think like that. Yeah. You know, you can actually find other ways to, to yep. deal with problems. Do, do you find that you would label your thoughts where, where you would kind of go, oh, I'm thinking I'm catastrophizing here? No, not until recently, okay. which yep. has been a massive help because mm-hmm. I used to catastrophize and just you, you're so oblivious to what's actually happening. You're not knowing what you, yep. that you're actually doing something. Yeah. But now that... You know, I do that. I'm able to go. All right, fuck, chill out. Like mm. you're catastrophizing. You're you've got anxiety. You need to just like, no, that's not you. Mm. Label it. Mm-hmm. And then I can do my list. Yes. Yeah. And I feel a bit better. Yeah. I, I often talk to people about this idea around primary and secondary emotions, mm-hmm. and that that primary emotions are our first response to something. Um, so if something happens and it makes you feel anxious, perhaps you've got a, a really busy day ahead and that brings up some anxiety for you, you know, we might call that a primary emotion in that you're, that you're feeling a little bit fearful about your ability to get that done. 
they're kind of helpful emotions to listen to mm. and they and they usually guide us to where we need to go. And then what people often do is engage in these secondary emotions, which are emotions about our emotions. And I think they're the part where all of the distress and sort of discomfort comes from. So you're feeling anxious about the day that you've got ahead and then you start going, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't right. feel anxious. I shouldn't – why am I feeling this way? I thought I was over this and, and all of that sort of thing. So instead of just having this primary issue of a busy day, we've got the busy day plus all the anxiety and thoughts and catastrophizing on top of it. And I think that idea of labelling what you're experiencing helps you stay with the primary just emotion. The primary. That's really interesting, really interesting, yeah. There's, well, there's a lot of reasons I can think back to now that I, I wish I stayed in that space because you can, you can so easily just get caught up in your head and you just go on this roller coaster. Yeah. And if you don't have that trigger to break you out of it and label it, yeah. it is really, really difficult um, to learn. And that's something I have learned by seeing it. You know, it's, like, it's not something you're going to listen to. Today might be a little bit of a, lis- a listen in a podcast, but that is something you actually have to go and really yes. learn how to do. Yeah, yeah, and practice as well. And practice. Like you said. Yeah, it becomes a habit really, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Even even in reflection, you know, you might have had a, a difficult day where you were, you really struggled mm. and if you think about these things after the event, so what happened? Why, why was I feeling anxious and overwhelmed? What, when I was catastrophizing, why did that happen or what was that about? You can learn so much in reflection too mm. that eventually will start to blur into, you know, managing things as they come up. Yeah. Speaking of emotion as well, um, I found like emotion is really, for me, it's very important. Like I'm a very emotional person, but I find that sometimes it gets a better of me and like you can make emotional decisions mm-hmm. or emotional reactions to things that aren't. So like yep. how is that, is there like another trigger in place that you can go like, all right, I'm an emotional person. There's a situation going. I know that I'm making this situation on emotion. Mm-hmm. Can you can you trigger that again and be like, all right, I'm in an emotional decision right now. I need to give this 24 hours to think about it. I think there is and there, there are different strategies depending on the emotion that you're experiencing or the reaction that mm. you're having because every emotion has a different function or a different purpose and so it might need a different strategy to help manage it. So if you're feeling really angry, you know, if you're in the car and someone's cut you off and you feel like you just want to go full road rage mode, <laughs> then it might be that you actually put on some calm music or you think nice thoughts about the driver or you do something that tries to bring down the intensity of that emotion and then and then likewise if you were feeling anxious and you know you really wanted to avoid something and and not feel that way then perhaps you might try and approach things gently um, or or go closer to those things that are making you anxious gently and and Mm. that can help restrict the the anxiety and then, and then similarly with something like sadness, you know, if, you, if you're feeling a sense of loss and, and you want to manage that emotion, then it might be about connecting with people. Um, so there, there are different things that you can do depending on the emotion that you're experiencing. But ultimately, if you're labelling thoughts first up, then you're halfway there. Yeah. OCD. It's something that um, – it's, it's not a funny one. It's something that is very prevalent. Mm-hmm. And I feel, you know, we're chatting off air about this and it's something that we really want to talk to today, which I really don't understand a lot myself. It's something that you work with a lot in, in sport. Can mm-hmm. you explain to us sort of maybe the preconception of what OCD is versus what it actually is? 
Yeah, well, I guess to give a bit of insight into how I how I got into yeah. sort of sport and also OCD, I think is that I, I worked in a program at a at a psychiatric hospital here in in Melbourne that was set up. So it's a three week inpatient admission wow. that people have for OCD, and it was the only one of its kind, or is the only one of its kind in Australia. And so we get people from all over the country, and sometimes overseas, coming in to do this program. And it was it was designed for the general population, but of course we'd get people from all different occupations and jobs, and and naturally we'd get athletes as well. And, and because I had this interest in in sport and athletes, and I guess the intersection with that and psychology, I I, I sort of had a bit of an interest mm. in that, and and started working with with athletes through that. But there there is a lot of misconceptions about. OCD and I think mainly because it's been popularized I think in different movies and TV shows and people sort of mislabeling their quirks as OCD but the 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 real sort of you know diagnosable OCD is probably the most debilitating mental health disorder that yeah. that I've seen and you know in this in this sort of hospital program that I that I was in you know you'd have people who were virtually levitating you know in a chair or in a bed so as they didn't touch anything people not able to leave the house not able to communicate with people um, you know completely debilitated by their OCD so it's really serious and really debilitating but interestingly in a sports context some of those behaviors are often rewarded as well so this idea that people are disciplined and perhaps have sort of superstitions that they engage in and, and little quirks that help them to um, compete, yeah. you know, are sort of rewarded. But the reality is that it, it's actually quite a serious disorder and can really impact people's ability to function normally in, in society. So what, what does that look like in sport then? So would that be something like, I suppose, the age-old like cliche of it would be, you know, putting the left sock on before the right sock and making sure that that has to be done. But I'm sure it goes a lot deeper than that. Yeah. And it's usually, it's usually spread across different life domains. So Mm. someone might have some OCD in their, in their sport life, but then they're likely to also have some OCD in their personal life as well with Mm. relationships and and other things. So in a, in a sports context, it can look, you know, a variety of different ways. So it could be that, you know, during a training session, someone needs to have a certain number of kicks of the ball or before they leave the field, they need to have a feeling that, you know, in with their kicking or their handballing, it just feels right. And if yeah. it doesn't quite feel right, then they can't leave until they get that feeling. It could be a number of sort of thoughts or behaviours about things that they need to do. You know, it, it can be things like needing to line up you know, shoes and socks or mm. packing the bag in a certain way. And a lot of people do those things anyway, but it might not necessarily mean that they meet full criteria. Yep. So it's like the fact that some people do that. You know, I know I like organisation, but at the end of the day, if I go, fucking, I'll leave that today. Mm. Whereas this, when it gets to those more serious cases, it's actually really hard to, to leave it and you have, you can't, you sort of obsess over getting it right. Correct, yeah. yeah. And the fact that you say you like organisation yeah. sort of makes me think, well, then it's it's probably not OCD. No. People with OCD hate organisation. Right. Or they might. That's a, that's a generalisation. Yeah. But they but they need to do it. They feel compelled to do it. And if they don't do it, they feel like they can't cope. Yeah. So, you know, people with superstitions or different things that they do, if they can stop those or if they can let them go um, at some point, then that's probably a good sign that it's not too, not too serious or not OCD. What's a way to... Well, how do you treat that? How do you get someone out of uh, a habit? So I guess it's really 
a lot of education around yeah. what OCD is, what works, what doesn't, mm-hmm. and then essentially exposing them to whatever they're afraid of. So often people with OCD, they'll have an intrusive thought or an intrusive image or something that they find quite distressing and then that will make them feel anxious and then they'll feel like they need to engage in a ritual to yep. stop the anxiety. So what we tend to do is to get people to experience those thoughts, those images without acting out or without, you know, completing the rituals to try and get them to, you know, habituate or get used to their OCD. Yeah. I like, Again, I'm, I'm not I'm just using it for my own um, comparing this if anyone would might find comfort in it, I'm not sure, but I used to have this thing every night before I went to bed, I'd have to like say all my family's name, mm-hmm. do like this symbol in my head, which I, I still do, but I don't count the numbers anymore. So mm. I think counting might be a really strong mm. part of it. So mm-hmm. I've dropped the counting out, yep. but I still do it every night before I go to bed because mm. this sounds so stupid when I'm saying it out loud, but I'd think that if I didn't do it, my whole family would die. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's, we, we all have those sort of quirks, yeah. but people don't tend to sort of talk about them. And, and now that I've said, I'm just like, that is the stupidest thing ever. But like in your head, when you don't say it, you're like, well, that's going to happen. Yeah. And, and that is the, that is essentially the crux of it yeah. is that you know that that's not true, but it feels like it is. Yeah. Uh, and that and that is that is essentially how you know obsessions work. Um, you, you know they're not true, but it feels like they are. Yeah. And so all of us have obsession obsessional tendencies and yeah. things that we feel like we need to do. Um, but are they getting in the way of our ability to function normally and and be okay out in the world? Mm. If not, then it's probably okay. And also just your ability to be able to change as well. Yeah. If if you can adjust and change that routine, then it's a good sign that For it's sure. okay. And by no means am I, I uh, you know, comparing that to any serious case of both today. It's more just to give an example there. But Thousands of Aussies trust Aussie Broadband to keep them connected to the world, even when they're on the go. Because as well as reliable home internet, Aussie Broadband also offers flexible mobile plans with super generous data allowances and no locking contracts. Their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help you make the switch. It only takes a few minutes. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Search Aussie Broadband Mobile to find out more. T's and C's apply. How can, you know, someone is having these tendencies and having um, signs of OCD that they might not have known and don't want it to, you know, get to a stage where it does take control of their life. Is there any sort of things they can put in place early, earlier to prevent rather than to, um, you know, go down that line? Look, I, I think seeking professional help yeah. is always the best, the best sort of call of um, call of action. In in that, you know, seeing someone who understands what to do and what not to do is really important, and someone who can start to develop a bit of a plan around managing those thoughts um, and, and rituals early on is a really good idea. So I think always just seek seek support, uh, find someone who can help. I think is is really important. Yeah. For someone who actually hasn't seen a psychologist before, this is a real, really general question because there could be someone out there that is looking at doing something or going to see someone. What, is it, what does it look like? What does it feel like those first, you know, couple of chats that you might have with a psychologist? What, what, what happens? It's, it, it, it's so hard and I, I try not to lose sight of the fact that when a new person comes and, comes and sees me that that's actually probably really challenging yeah. and really confronting. It's probably the hardest part. Exactly, the hardest part. And, and often you don't get a great opportunity to get to know your psychologist before you see them. Yeah. So it, it's, all, it's all nerve-wracking. I think often, you know, most psychologists will try and make you feel comfortable and 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 safe in those first first few first few sessions. I think they'll try and do an assessment and and understand what kind of things you want to work on and 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 what 
what you need help with essentially. Mm. That, that's what I would do. But, but certainly trying to make people feel comfortable, trying to explain how psychology works, give an opportunity to ask questions, all of those things I guess really to help people understand. But having said that, and, and this happens all the time, you know, where clients will come and see me and they might think, oh, just not quite the right fit yeah. uh, and look for recommendations to go and see someone else. And so I think that's a really normal thing for people to know as well, that yeah. if you go and see a psychologist and they're not the right fit, fine. Happens all the time. Um, go and find someone. Go and find someone else. So yeah. it's okay to sort of try before you buy, I suppose, with psychology. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Go and uh, shop yourself around and yeah. make sure you find the, the right fit. No, it's, you're so right though, because I suppose a lot of people, as you said, it's a, such a big step to go and see someone, and then if you're not probably clicking with that person, you go, oh fuck, that's not for me. I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Which is which would be such a shame. Yeah. If if you went and saw a psychologist and you didn't like them, and so you sort of thought this is not for me, uh, and and certainly people can call the psychologist or speak to the psychologist mm. and ask them what they're about and how they work and try and get a sense of that before they go and see it. But it is a really hard thing. And like, I always feel a great sense of admiration for people when they go and see a psychologist because it's not easy. And it's a, it's a real act of, I guess, vulnerability and, and, and being open, which is not, not easy to do. How, how do you deal with being a psychologist sitting with people all day, you know, trying to find solutions and, and techniques and putting, you know, things in place with them and then having to go home and live your own life. I'm sure you've you've got high points, you've got low points yourself as well. Is it is it difficult to to switch off? Yeah, it's it's interesting because that's probably the most common question that I get about about working in the field is, mm. how, is how, how do I sleep at night? And it's nice that people care <laughs> care so much about me. Uh, but I, I think I think I've gotten better over time. Yeah. You know, in terms of figuring out what works for me, and I, that's probably the case for everyone in their chosen industries as well. That you you sort of get a sense for for what works. So for me, you know, exercise and eating well, and you know, not sort of drinking too much on the weekends and and staying connected with my friends and, and all of those sorts mm. of things really really help as a as a psychologist we we're required to have supervision so where we go and speak to a more senior psychologist about I guess the different cases and different things that we're exposed to and I think right. that that really helps as well so um, you you check in with someone else to just talk about how you're going as well. Is that, yeah, yeah, so in order to maintain my registration, yeah, wow. I have to speak to someone who is generally more senior yep. about difficult cases or how I'm finding things and and that I find is invaluable in terms of just being able to offload the work um, and speak about the work and, and get some get some support and advice as well and that, that's really normalised within yep. the industry. So. So that's that's great, but I, I think there's something about routine too. Mm. I, I find for me that over the years, I, I find that you know putting on my work clothes, going and buying a coffee, um, and engaging in in sort of that routine, almost it's almost like putting on a bit of an, an armor when I go to work, yeah, uh, an emotional armor. So when I arrive, I've I've done my routine and I'm able to be present without being too overly involved in in how someone's feeling. Yep. So I think routine and structure is a is a good way of managing too. I don't know if this is, is a thing either, but I've found like doing this podcast and I'm not sure if this is you've found this as well in your line of work, but genuinely just having an hour a week and you'd have a lot more hours than me, but of just like face to face talking with someone is like the best thing that I've ever done in my life. Because mm. I don't have my phone on me. I'm like fully engaged mm. in a conversation. It's probably the most engaged I am all week and you just have a conversation with someone about everything you're thinking about. It's actually quite like therapeutic and I would say to anyone, if you don't want to see a psychologist yet, maybe it's just like 
trying to have more one-on-one open conversations with someone else to keep trying to, you know, build up that confidence and then see someone next. I don't know if that's good advice, but I, I like, I've found from just doing um, like a podcast, maybe everyone goes out and start a podcast, you actually get so much, oh, I personally get so much out of just talking mm. to people about things and I, I learn from that myself. Yeah, so it's sort of like self-care for it's you self-care. or It's self-care. It's like something. a very selfish way to, uh, to, I don't know, just learn from other people and get out of your own out of your own like head. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it selfish. I, yeah. I think it, it sounds like as I said, it, it's self-care and obviously a lot of people also get out of get a lot out of your conversations with other people. But I think I think that's that's a really good sign for you about, you know, what works for you too, mm. what helps you relieve stress or what helps you feel like you're connected and being present. And it's actually doing the podcast, which is great. You yeah. Know, doing your job, um, you know, one hour a week or this particular part of it helps you feel connected. So I always say to people that, that that's a great sign for you that you know that there's something each week that you do that helps. Yeah. And there's probably other things similar to it that, that help you feel, you know, content and, and happy and, you know, connected. Yeah. I think there's, oh, there's a lot. And I'm, I'm, you know, as I'm getting older, I think we, we put a lot of fancy words on things these days, mm. you know, about like realising this stuff. But I think it generally just comes to growing up and you mm. learn a lot more as you make mistakes and, and things happen. But I've learnt now what doesn't isn't mm. good for me. Yeah. And I think... A lot of it, and this sounds stupid again, even saying it out loud, but a really big anxiety thing for me is like when I drink alcohol and I'm on social media because mm. then the next day I will just fucking just be freaking out. Like yep. what did I do, you know, what the hell? That's when I will catastrophize and just be like, what the fuck happened? Yeah. Absolutely freaking out. So I know now I've got to try and avoid that and that's mm-hmm. like my thing that I try and really avoid is to mix those two things together because I'm like, this just isn't good for me. Like I know that like these things don't work. Yeah, yeah. And especially if you've been drinking and then you wake up the next day, you're already depleted. You probably haven't slept properly. You're more predisposed to feeling anxious and, you know, and having low mood. And then you're going through the, you know, your social media account looking mm. at what you've yeah. what you've said and what done. Posted, yeah. uh, so it's a bit of a recipe for disaster. But I think that's great that you know, you know, you know what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, I, today I've had like a real realisation and I don't even know if we've said it, but calling things out mm-hmm. when you know them is like nearly the most powerful thing mm-hmm. for me personally mm-hmm. now that I've realised it's like when I'm feeling anxious, call it out as anxiety. Mm-hmm. When I know something's not good for me, call it out and go, hey, I know this actually isn't good for me. This is the reason I'm feeling like shit. Yeah. When I'm, when something's working well, being like, hey, I know that actually works really well. Mm-hmm. I know talking to someone one hour a week, I know for me recently like you were talking before about getting back into the real world, things being busy and being like super chaotic, not saying no to things. I had to go to Sydney for a month just mm. to get away. I was mm. like, I need to just have my own space because when I was in Melbourne, I was like, just you get you're with all your friends and you're just like doing way too much. Mm. Um, I know that it's good for me to get away and not yep. have to do anything. And like, you know, I did miss a couple of birthdays, but I was like, fuck, I, I need to do that. I need to say no to things. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that's so powerful. Like you said, the ability to say, I, I actually need a break and I can't do those things. And they're not feeling bad about it. Mm. Because I think that's what happens too is that people, you know, they feel stressed or they feel anxious about things and they just keep pushing through, keep going to things, keep going to things. And then when they decide, I, I can't go, like I can't go to that party, then they feel guilty. Mm. I'm a bad friend. You know, I'm not doing the right thing. But the the idea that you have a sense of what works for you and can call it out, I need a break, I'm going to go to Sydney for a month and not feel bad about that and just know yeah. that that's what you need is, you know, they're the, they're the tools for success in life, I think. Oh, look, please, I don't have it figured out at all. I still uh, <laughs> I still freak out about it and I still care what people think. But it's, I think, one really funny 
like realization I had when I was playing footy was always just to stress about the senior coach mm. and think, well, what does he think about me? Mm. You know, like I'm thinking about him. What does yep. he think about me? And then I thought, well, he's got 44 other people that he has to worry about. Yeah. So divide my feelings <laughs> yeah. by 44 and that's, yep. he's not even really thinking about me at yep. all. And then again on TikTok, I learned another one yep. like this. It said, you, um, you are not the main character in everyone else's story. <laughs> yeah. So as soon as I realised that, I was like, oh, so in Mary Spillane's life, I'm not the main character <laughs> yep. in her movie. You know, yep. she's in her own story. I started really thinking, no one actually gives a fuck what yep. you do. And you missing birthday parties, you missing things, you think people care. They really don't. They worry. Mm. They've got their own shit to worry about. Like yep. they have so many other things that they're worried about. They're not, they don't really care about you. So in a nice way, it's almost like saying to myself, I'm really not as important as I think I am to everyone else. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty brutal in yeah. some ways, isn't it? It's but nice, it, but it's like harsh. It, it's just some hard truths yeah. that yeah, you're not the main character, and that for every catastrophic thought that you have, the person next to you is probably having some as well. Yeah, um, and that trying to recognise that, I think, and and be aware of that is really is really helpful. Yeah, is there a, is there a saying? I'm not going to say I found this on TikTok again, but there's a saying. I don't know. I think it might be called like melancholy. Is it yeah. called melancholy where maybe there's a saying, we'll have to fact check this, but it's like you can walk past someone in the street and like know that they are just living their own life and they're going through. Anyway, mm-hmm. I think it was TikTok, so we won't bring it up. I've got to stop doing that. I've got to stop doing that. I've really got to stop watching TikTok. Um, psychology tips. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty much a cl- clinical psychologist now yeah, from, exactly. from watching TikTok. That's pretty much all you need. That's the new um, pathway. Yeah. Yeah. You went the hard way. I'm going the easy way. Um, most common things people come to see you about, we said before, anxiety, um, you know, OCD, obviously specialise mm-hmm. in that field. For, for anyone out there that, you know, is just looking at getting better and, and not getting better but just being the best version of themselves mm-hmm. um, um, is probably a better phrase, what are some tips or tricks or little techniques or tidbits that you find are most beneficial um, in a busy world? Yeah, look, I think it depends on on the person, and and mm. like we were saying before, what you what works for you and what doesn't work for you, and having an understanding of that that can help. But I think off the back of a you know the, the pandemic and everything that's happened, really trying to make those meaningful connections again mm. with people is really important. We've been largely isolated, and and things have been difficult from that perspective. So I think staying connected with people and and speaking to people again, mm. seeing people face to face is is really important. And when you say that do you mean like a small circle of people or do you mean like try and get out and see as many people as you want or are you saying like pick your core people and they're your people because I've found nearly since COVID I've probably just gravitated to like a really smaller crew that is understands me a bit more if that's what I mean like I've and I've still got you know a lot of friends and great people that I just don't see as much and find that actually takes a lot of energy from me too. Yeah, yep. So I think I think it's it's about finding people, like you said, that, yeah. that make you feel good and make you feel like yourself is yeah. really important. But I think there's a lot to be spoken about finding something that you enjoy and finding the the kinds of things that that you feel passionate about as well, particularly after what's happened. So people, like I said, feeling a bit restless, not feeling quite content at the moment. So trying to find hobbies and interests and connecting with those I think Mm. is really important and finding some joy can, can really help. But then understanding what, like we were saying before, what makes you feel good and what, what are some of the things that, that make you feel, 
not so good and trying to do more of those good things I think is really important. But even just just thinking about it, writing it down, what makes me feel good, what doesn't, and then put a bit of a plan in place to get those things done I think mm. is, is really, really helpful. But it's it's difficult for me to say, oh, well, everyone needs to go out and do X, Y, and Z because yeah. for some people it might be good, for some it, 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 it might not. Yeah. So thinking about what works for you and trying to – employ those strategies is often really helpful yeah it's a massive one and it's something that i always try and be really clear on is the fact like just because something's worked for me or someone else it doesn't mean it's going to work for you Mm -hmm. um and not sort of pushing things down people's throats more like look this is what's the situation but there's so many other ways because i the amount of time people have told me to like get into cycling and i'm like can you seriously fuck off like i hate cycling so much i hate it it's not good for my mind but people just love it they're like i'm in the fresh air you know i'm riding a bike like that is not for me. So I think you're so right um, in the fact like it's finding out what is your thing. Mm. For me, I love playing squash. Yeah. It is like high pace, sweat a lot. I have to go get out of the house to do it and I play it with people that aren't my best friends but I play it with people that I go. So I'm sort of like seeing new people, yep. getting different perspectives. Yep. It's a short, sharp game. I get my sweat on. I get that, you know, endorphins of working out mm. and I also really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So that, that that's exactly it. Is that you, people are telling you that you should do cycling, and that's yeah. what everyone does, and but you don't you don't actually like it. Mm. So that there's not going to be much benefit to you to, to going and do cycling, but squash and, and things like that. And like I'm I'm the same. There are some things I think, gosh, I couldn't think of anything worse than doing that really popular activity. Mm. Um, but then there are other things that I, I find a lot of kind of joy and um, and and help me feel relaxed. So it's important to think about those things, yeah, in terms of what works for you. How much is and again, very cliche things, but how much is like getting back to like nature, drinking water, like all these things? Is it is that actually do you find works for some people? Like because I know it works for me, so I'm just saying I don't realize I, I preach on about it a lot. And I know some cases are a lot more serious than just getting fixed with going in nature and drinking water. Mm, but mm-hmm. is it something that you would say is is really good for you? yourself yeah again i think if if that works for you then absolutely and certainly you know things like um doing a mindfulness exercise out in nature can certainly be really relaxing and and help you feel calm and centered so i think if those things work for you then absolutely go and do them and Mm. and that's i think what it comes down to is what's effective what works for you um and if, if being out in nature and feeling connected to the world that way helps then yeah keep doing it mindfulness is something you work a lot with with headspace Mm -hmm. what is your mindfulness 101 like what works for you personally that you find is is really beneficial when it comes to mindfulness because i know it's such a big space with so many different ways to do things and again back to the story before about um you know seeing one psych and and not working i did some mindfulness and i was like that's for me i hate it Mm -hmm. until i had you know found different things that would work Mm -hmm. yeah can i tell you a story about mindfulness and how i got into it please do so uh, how how I got into mindfulness. So I was a, uh, a psych student and as a part of my master's course, we had to do a, a placement um, and or different placements. And the first one that I did as this sort of, you know, baby psych was I went to an uh, outpatient psychiatric hospital and did was was going to co-facilitate a mindfulness group so essentially these people would come in week after week and they'd get to start off with they'd get a you know the the facilitator would read out a mindfulness exercise and then they do some they do some theory and so my placement was to co-facilitate this and so for a couple of weeks I observed and thought yeah I think I've got the hang of this this seems this seems okay 
And so the co-facilitator, who is much more experienced, said, you know, your role will be to um, read the script, you know, in the, in the beginning. So read out the mindfulness, 10 to 15 minute script, and then go around the room and get people to provide some reflections on how they found the mindfulness exercise. So I thought, yep, easy. Practice the script. <laughs> rocked up and said, I'm going to be doing it today, read, read through the script and then went to the group and I didn't stumble over any words or, you know, didn't need any retakes or anything like that. And then said to the group, you know, what, how do people go with that? And this, this lady said to me, I I was just terribly distracted throughout that entire exercise. And I said, okay, do you know what that's about? What, What was it that was distracting you? And she said, I have to be brutally honest with you. You have the most monotone voice I have ever heard. And it is completely distracting me from doing the exercise. (laughs) How can she even do it if she's not listening to you? I was sitting there. I was sitting there thinking my career is over before it's even begun. Wow. And tried to hold, tried to hold my nerve and go, okay, I'm going to keep going around. Call it out as emotion. Keep going around the group. (laughs) And then sure enough, got to another person and said, you know, how did you find it? And she's like, look, I'm going to have to agree. Your your voice is pretty monotone. (laughs) What the fuck? And so I went out afterwards, you know, destroyed, thinking it was all over. Spoke to the co-facilitator and said, I I don't know. I I don't think I can come back. I think it's, it's, it's all done. And she said, do you practice mindfulness yourself? I said, no, I'm, I'm the facilitator. You know, this is 10 years ago or so. And she said, I think you need to practice mindfulness. And I think that will help you to see how people facilitate mindfulness, see how, see how other people run it. And also just to start your own practice and see what happens. And so sure enough, I did that. And, and that's sort of where I found, you know, my own practice started was from, from that moment. And uh, look, my voice might still be monotone. You might get some feedback from listeners that no, it's not I, great. I think it's very <laughs> pluritone. I don't even know what that is. So, yeah. Hepatone. 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 Yeah. yeah. Um, but what I found was that it, it really helped. It, it helped, I think, in my ability to f- facilitate mindfulness. Yeah, wow. But it also helped me be able to show up week after week in this group where I'd had this feedback and sort of start to recognise that, well, my voice was my voice and there was not much I could do to change it, but that I could try and change my relationship to my, you know, my fear around my voice or what I felt my voice meant. So that, that's sort of where my, my journey started. And I found I got a lot of benefits quite quickly from, from doing it. And in terms of managing that primary and secondary emotions, like I was talking before, um, speaking about before, I found that really helpful. So look, I think, you know, there are different ways that you can practice mindfulness. So you've got formal mindfulness, which is doing, you know, sitting down or standing or whatever it might be and doing a a guided meditation, Mm. uh, which can be really great. And then there's informal mindfulness, which is just your everyday mindfulness where, you know, you might spend a couple of minutes just paying attention to whatever you're doing in that very moment. And I think a bit of a mixture of both is, is a good, is a good way of uh, structuring your mindfulness practice. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Those uh, informal mindfulness is I found personally for Mm. me has been, been huge because I think with the formal stuff, it's, I don't know what everyone's like, but I know some people really love sitting down and, and doing that for, you know, 10 minutes and just, you know, they've got their mantra and they can mm. they can do it. But the informal stuff I found is really cool to like be present. So yep. explain if you could go into that a little bit further about like, you know, from my um, knowledge of it and what I try and do is if I'm going for a walk, leaving my phone at home and sort of like holding my dog's lead, like feeling the rope, 
Mm. You know, looking at trees, trying to like sense what I can smell, you know, like all those types of things is something that I'll, I'll try and, and do which, whether, you know, in the past I just go for a walk, put my headphones in, have my phone, scroll mm. on Instagram while I'm walking my dog. Like it just, yep. it's probably the opposite. Yeah, and then probably thinking about all sorts of things as well. Yeah. So just way too sort of plugged in um, and, and not and often they're not aware of what, what's actually going on for you mm. in, in the moment. So I think informal in mindfulness or everyday mindfulness is attending to what you're doing in that moment and it's usually by using the five senses. Yep. So what can you feel, what can you see, touch, hear, smell and really tuning into that for a few moments and and just exploring with curiosity and and non-judgment mm-hmm. what is happening in that moment. So it could be that you're going for a walk, it could be that you're brushing your teeth, mm. going for a run, eating a meal, just really sort of tuning in to what's happening in the moment. So if you were in a just say you're taking a session now of mindfulness very quickly mm-hmm. and you're going in this room with those five senses, would you sort of get people like sitting down like this, yep. closing their eyes or, or opening their eyes, you know, bring doing maybe a bit of breath work beforehand to lower the heart rate and then being like, all right, what in this room, what can you see, what can you feel? Is yep, that, yep. Yeah. that would be as simple as it, as it is. Yeah. It's essentially, like you said, getting people to sort of tune into the breath potentially and then tune into what they're noticing within this room and then potentially try and get them to expand their awareness. You yeah. know, what can you hear outside of this room or what can you see outside of this room and then tune back in and, and back to the breath. Mm. And and that might only take, you know, three to five minutes and, and it just gives the brain a break. You get to unplug a little bit and sometimes you can even just tune in to some other need that you might have in that moment. Mm. You know, you might notice that you feel hungry. Um, or you might notice that you feel really tired and then that can help you kind of structure up the rest of your day or, you know, you know, need to go and eat or you need to have a break. So it can just help you tune in to what's going on for mm. you. And and knowing that thoughts that come into your head is okay. Yeah. And then just coming back to the mindfulness. Yeah. And, and that's one of the- That's a big part that people oh. stop. They go, oh, fuck, I'm thinking all these thoughts. I'm not doing it right. Yeah. And people, I mean, that's one of the biggest barriers of mindfulness is people say, I, I wasn't I wasn't a Zen person that had completely cleared their mind. Therefore, I can't do it properly. And it's that's not it at all. It's We, we sort of recognize that we're constantly having thoughts. There's this, there's this stream of thoughts that are happening. And that's not, that's not the problem. It's the relationship that we have with those thoughts and the mm. meaning that we attach with them, the judgment that we place. So if you're able to just sit there and kind of watch your thoughts come and go and not attach meaning to them, then you're actually developing a really cool skill around, you know, focus, attention, concentration and non-attachment to, to thoughts, mm. uh, which is which is so helpful in many different domains in life. Yeah, I must admit I'm still really not great at keeping that as a habit. You mm. know, I do it when things are going well but then you get busy and you just you keep – bringing it back but you know we spoke with with Emma Murray who you know is a, a mutual of yours and she said that around that acceptance of going look you don't have to do this every day don't set high goals just know that when it feels good and you can do it just get it done yeah for sure and the the headspace app they've done some research yeah. around mindfulness and and have shown that within 10 days of if you practice mindfulness for 10 days in a row you will start to notice benefits in in you know in terms of increasing positive emotions um, and, and a decrease in stress and, um, and and those sorts of things. So I, I sort of say the same thing. You don't need to commit right here and now 
to a lifetime of daily mm. mindfulness, just have a crack and see what happens. And often the the results sort of speak for themselves. Yeah, so interesting. Anyone listening? I'm I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna have a crack. A bit better of a crack. The last sort of thing on on this, and I don't even know if it really correlates to this, but something I found has been a big game changer for me in with my mindfulness or even just my overall mental health is like language mm-hmm. and the way that maybe I think or speak to myself. Mm-hmm. And it was more, it's like that question, like the chicken before the egg. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, do you get confidence and feel good about yourself first and then speak to yourself well, cause mm-hmm. you're doing it. Or mm-hmm. do you start speaking to yourself before you even feel good and then you start feeling good. Mm-hmm. And I found like for me, I would just go to myself like, you know, you're a legend, you're doing, you know, you're doing all these cool things. Instead of going, I'm never going to do that. I was like, I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. You know, like the way that I'd sort of phrase things in my mind. And then lo and behold, like I actually started feeling better mm-hmm. and those things were happening because yep. I was sort of saying them, if that yep. makes sense. Like it's like the person going, I'm a dickhead, I'm not going to do it. Mm. Is it true that your brain actually can't tell the difference whether you're joking or not? Well, I mean, I think you make a really interesting point there around, you know, th- there's this idea of that we can speak really positive about ourselves um, and that sometimes that can not be that helpful. Um, I don't know if that's what you were referring yeah. to, but yeah. but what I, I try to tell people to do is to just be more neutral about things. Mm. If you can be really positive, you can be really negative. And I think the more that we're able to just be neutral about what's happening rather than constantly applying meaning and yeah. value, the easier things, um, the easier th- things can be. You know, so, you know, instead of saying, you know, if you have a bad day and you go home and have had a really shit day, well, the opposite of that is I've had an awesome day yeah. and it was excellent and everything went right. Yeah. That's not going to be overly yeah. validating. Yeah. You know, so we don't need to replace the negative thought with the positive thought. It might just be I had a day. I had a day. I had a day and I'll have another one tomorrow. That's such a – it's – well – a, a bit of a revelation for me now because we always used to speak about like the equilibrium mm. when me and you know, I think they never get too high, never get too low. Mm-hmm. And I found that, you know, even though I do try and speak to myself positive, I think I am going a little bit too positively because I, you can still find your way that you can crash yeah. rather than just sort of sitting in the middle and going, look, today was a good day, but keep a lid on it. Like you don't need to get too excited yeah. versus going right to the top. And I suppose you just sit more in that middle of the equilibrium rather than going up you know, going way too high, way too low, way too high, way too low. You're on a roller coaster. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So I think neutral. And it's the same if, if you've got, you know, an athlete or a player or someone who lo- who loses a big game mm. and they, they think that was terrible, you know, and I, I'm so disappointed. And then they try and go, okay, that's not the right way to think. I need to be positive about this. You know, we lost and it was great and there was so much that we take away and blah, blah, blah. Sometimes that just does not feel validating and it does not feel true and genuine. And so we're not going to believe it. But if you can be more neutral in your language, not negative, not positive, just neutral and state the facts about things without adding this judgment and value, it is a lot easier to work through things. So I think I think you're right. We want a bit of a balance, not not sort of finding ourselves in the extreme yeah. one way or the other. Yeah. And positivity and, you know, constant positivity is not is not the answer and not the cure by so any means. True. No, I couldn't yeah, like I, I stuff up with that a lot and I think I've got to get better at my messaging around that because the facts are things aren't always good Correct. and they're not, they're not always positive. So you can't always put a positive spin on everything that happens because sometimes you can't find the, the positive in, in some situations. Yeah, exactly. And, and in some ways, you know, you might be able to, and that's okay. I don't want to say that I don't want to completely demonize positivity and yeah. say that it's not, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but it's just, I think sometimes, you know, when, when people sort of get stuck around, well, how can I think about this and how can I interpret what's happened? 
the the knee-jerk reaction is to say think positively but I think it's important that you also just try and think neutrally mm. and see what see what that brings up, take some of the emotion out of it. And instead of the op- maybe the positivity, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is like look for the opportunity yeah. to for something else. It still might not be a positive opportunity but there still might be another way from it. I'm trying to, you know, I always my biggest like mantra in life is it's not what happens, it's how I react to it. So I'm just yeah. thinking in that situation like no matter what happens I always try and find something out of it that's not so much positive but just another route that yeah. I can go down. Yep, sure. Um, which is, yeah, no, it's, it's really good. You've really given me a revelation on that whole not to get too high thing because I think it is a reason why I do crash a fair bit because I'm just like, oh, it's either 100% sick or fucking terrible. Yeah. And there's got to be something in the middle. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely destabilising. So yeah. I think it's an important one. Definitely. Sorry, just to go back onto Headspace quickly, we're talking about informal um, mindfulness and formal. There's There's formal mindfulness on that app, isn't there? Correct, yeah. yeah. So like is there sessions people just download and actually just go in and – run them yeah that- so it's it's almost it feels like an unlimited sort of supply, um, supply of yeah. mindfulness and I, I like it because you can there's a search function so if you if you just feel like there's something that i need to do mindfulness about you, you can um search it so you know if it's you've had a long day at work you know i can type that in the search function and sure enough there'll be meditations that come up really? around you know sure. A long day at work so yeah people can log in um and and download different exercises there's there's courses so if you've never done mindfulness before there's all of these sort of different um courses introduction courses that explain what you're supposed to do and, and what being mindful actually means so um, and i think it's a great resource and they're, and they're constantly updating and and changing things and trying to make it more accessible and it, it's sort of it's no frills mindfulness i think that's what i like about it it's yeah. just it's just the nuts and bolts done well um and and really yeah really accessible yeah awesome all right well i'm sure i'm sure that's on every app store absolutely yeah i'm gonna head in and download the the hell out of that one have a crack hey mary you've been incredible today i just want to know from you what is next for you what do you want to do in this space is there any goals um anything that you're looking to do in the near future where where do you want to take your career um in the near future look i, I think um i i feel pretty happy with how things are how things are going mm. at the moment and and feel really content with with what's what's been happening and i think as i said you know coming out of lockdown i worked a lot um, you know, filled my time with work. And so I think I'll, I'll try and scale that back a little bit as, as a bit of a goal. And then, and then I guess think about it, you know, what's next. So I think maybe my goal at the moment is what's, what's my goal, um, figuring out what my goals Mm. are. Uh, but I, I know for a fact that I, I love, you know, working in sport. I love psychology and feel really passionate about those two things. And so I know that that's where, that's where my future is and, and what I'm aiming to always sort of learn and, and do more of. Um, but I think at the moment I am in a bit of a state of reflection and thinking about what's next for me and, and, um, and, and yeah, working, working through that. But I, I try not to be too prescriptive about where I'm headed. So I don't, I don't have a five year, 10 year plan. I, I tend to sort of jump at opportunities and go with where my heart and my head is telling me to go. And that seemed to sort of lead me to some pretty interesting places so far. So I think I'll, I'll go with that, but certainly reflect on what's happened and, and what's next as well. I love that. It's really cool. I think for everyone in general, like sometimes you can be like, fuck, if I don't have a plan, you know, where, where am I at? Mm. But it's like just being comfortable knowing I'm happy with what I'm doing and I'm going to say yes to opportunities that I want to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the goal. 
Love it. Love it. Hey, it's been incredible. I've learned so much from you. I really, really appreciate um, your time. The I just want to say again, the, the main thing that I really learned today and I hope people take out of, because I know I definitely have, is all the mindfulness stuff, which is great and definitely check that out. But they're just calling out of emotions. It's mm. just like giving me just a massive weight off my shoulders. I know this isn't a one-on-one psychology uh, meeting and sometimes <laughs> I forget oh, the people yeah. listen to these shows. Charge you later. Yeah, yeah. seriously. Yeah, just send the invoice through. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I've really got a lot out of that actually. Just yep. calling out things and identifying it as anxiety, emotion, um, you know, whatever it is and going, that's not actually me. That's just what this is. Mm. Put your triggers in place. Yep. Make yep, your list. Great. Love it. Love Thank it. you so much. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. If you liked the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.